Me, I'll be in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Anybody here uh, ever run a 5K? I, I, bet, I bet a bunch of you, yeah, a bunch of you have run 5Ks. And one of the things you get if you run a 5K is you get a race shirt. So this is the Tigers in Motion 5K race shirt. And it you know, has a tiger on the back. And I uh, got this, this uh, couple... Uh, not too long ago, I ran the 5K with Asher. I was going to guess at the date, but then you tell me I was wrong after the service, so I just gave up on that. So, uh, not too long ago, I ran this with Asher, and I think one of the point, you know, part of the point of running uh, a 5K and then getting the race shirt is so you can kind of wear the race shirt around proudly and you're like, yeah, I conquered that race. You know, I did all 3.1 miles. That is kind of like the call to conquer where it's run the whole Christian race. Run the whole race, finish the whole course, do the whole thing, and if you do, according to Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, there'll be a crown of life stored up for you. So it says in the second part of chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We saw that last week. Crown of life is not the same thing as a race shirt, but it's the idea of run the whole race. Finish the whole thing. Don't quit halfway through. And what we're going to look at today is the danger of false teaching. False teaching would be like someone that's pretending to be a race official pointing you in the wrong direction saying, yeah, the race is going that way. Do, have you ever known anyone that was running a race and went off course? I mean, that happens. I've never been in the lead group. I've always had plenty of people to follow, so I've never gone off course. But I have friends who have gone off course and ended up losing the race because they got off course. False teaching is pointing people in the wrong direction. And they get off course. And they end up being disqualified or losing the race. The truth, good teaching, points people in the right direction. And so when we're going to read this, the teaching is stay on the right course. No matter how much pressure you feel to go the wrong direction. No matter how convincing they are, stay on path. Okay? So... Let's pray, and then we'll look at the passage. Lord, we are your people, and you want us to finish the race. You want us to have victory in Jesus. You want us to stand for the truth. But Lord, we need you. So Lord, stand in front of me while I'm in front of them. Talk over me while I talk to them. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, as we continue in this series called Conquer, as each of the seven churches are called to conquer. I think you'll identify with this church. By the way, John is writing from the book of 
I'm sorry, from the island of Patmos. You can see Patmos there is circled in red. And these seven churches are on a trade route, and we are on Pergamum this week. So chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. So you can, again, I say it every week, but Pergamum is a real place. Uh, we're not talking about Mordor or something like that. Like, this is a real place, and you can go there today. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So you're going to see the sharp two-edged sword in the beginning of this, and then you'll see it again at the end of this passage. The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. So, so you can totally ignore this if you want to, but I think this is really um, gripping. Like This to me is like grab you by the throat gripping, and I'll show you why in just a second. But the Greek word for dwell is, is up there in red. That's what that looks like. So just kind of take a mental image of that, and then you'll see it again in just a second. So Jesus, our resur resurrected Lord, says to them, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. And by saying that, he's saying, I know what you're going through. And he says, where Satan's throne is. Wow. I know that you live where Satan lives. Wow. This is a church that's facing a lot of pressure from the outside. A lot. So people wonder, they speculate, well, why is it that our Lord would say this? And some people speculate one thing, some people speculate another thing. The, the reason that most of them think that this is where Satan's throne was, or what the, you know, the, the reason John would write this, the words of our Lord, is because this was the seat of emperor worship. So uh, you'd worship the Caesar by taking a pinch of incense and throwing it in the brazier and saying, Caesar is Lord as you say it. And this is, by doing this, you're like pledging allegiance to Caesar. And by pledging allegiance to Caesar, you're pledging allegiance to Rome. And so you're a good citizen. And you just, you're, you're drinking the Kool-Aid, if you will, of the empire. And so Pergamum was the center of this. They had the temple for it, and like this, was, this was the center of the world when it comes to emperor worship apart from Rome itself. So, so people think that's why. And I think that could be true. I also wonder, why can't it be that Satan didn't actually live there? could be that Satan actually lived. Satan is not omnipresent like God is, so God is everywhere all at once. Satan is not. Could be that our Lord knew that that's actually where Satan's throne really was in the spiritual realm. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You're holding the line, and it's difficult to hold the line where you live. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. So like Antipas held the line, would not say, you know, we think something like, would not say Caesar is Lord. A lot of Christians died over that, over the years. A lot of Christians gave their lives to not say Caesar is Lord because they believe Jesus is Lord. I don't know if that's what it was, but it's something like that is why Antipas died, because he would not renounce Jesus' name. Jesus is Lord and nobody else is. 
And so he's called the faithful witness. You know, in Revelation 1.5, I want to just read that to you. Chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to actually start in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Like, Antipas... Jesus is like, you know what? I'm going to give you my name. You're a faithful witness just like I'm the faithful witness. This church is holding the line under a lot of pressure. And where are they doing it? Where Satan dwells. That same Greek word. It's like, you live there, Satan lives there, and so because you live there and you're both living there, you're, there's a lot of conflict and a lot of pressure. And so this is a church, just hear me on this, okay? If, if you just have checked out the last 10 minutes and you're just kind of coming back, welcome. I'm glad you're back. This is a church that was under a lot of pressure. A lot of pre- People were dying. This is a church that was suffering incredibly. So it's really shocking what we read next. But I have a few things against you. You're like, what? They're holding the line. People are dying. You have stuff against them? Are you kidding me? Do you know what they're going through? But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, who on earth was Balaam? Remember, Balaam is the guy who had the talking donkey. Remember that story from KidZone when you were in something like KidZone? He's the guy whose donkey, you know, wouldn't take him through the pass because the angel was going to kill him. And so after he beats the donkey, the Lord opens the donkey's mouth. The donkey talks to him. I don't know if you remember that story or not. But that's Balaam. It's in Numbers. And so Balaam, uh, if I advance the slide, I actually have the passages up there so you can write them down. So Balaam uh, finds another way around and goes and meets with King Balak. And what Balak wants Balaam to do is to curse the people of Israel because he can see they're coming and they're colonizing and they're taking over and he wants them just destroyed. But no matter what Balaam does or no matter what King Balak does, Balaam does nothing but bless the people of Israel. So Balak sends him back home, and for all the world, it looks like, in Numbers 25, 1 through 3, and 26, 15 through 16, Balaam advises King Balak on how to make the Israelites fall. And that is, send your women over to them and entice them to idol worship with sexual immorality. And so King Balak does. He sends his women out there. They entice the men, which entices the families, into idol worship, which leads, which is part of it with sexual immorality. And they ended up in sin, and it costs Israel a great deal, and, and they fall. And this becomes like a paradigm for false teachers leading people astray, Balaam telling the foreign king how to make Israel fall. Okay, so... 
you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, which would mix idol worship with sexual immorality, okay? Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So again, we don't know who the Nicolaitans are, but they're probably very related to uh, Balaam and Balak, which were combining sexual sin with idols. To me, these two go together. Idol worship and sexual immorality go together, kind of like at frat parties, alcohol and sexual immorality go together. Like if you go to the idol feast and you do the big feast and you get super drunk and then the temple prostitutes come out, what do you think is going to happen next? You know, if you go to some parties and you have the big feast and you get super drunk and then what do you think is going to happen next? Kind of the same idea. And there are people in the church evidently getting pulled into this. People are saying, well, it's okay for this reason or that reason. It's the false teaching. Therefore, Jesus says, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is saying, if you don't deal with this false teaching, I am going to come to you and I'm going to go to war with some of you. So, hear what I'm saying. Please hear what I'm saying and please conquer. To the one who conquers, this is why we're saying victory in Jesus, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, what is a hidden manna? Well, the hidden manna is Jesus' life-giving material. So please understand the idol food is not life-giving. The manna from Christ is life-giving. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I don't know exactly what that means, but it seems like the context is feasts, and so I will give you a white stone, probably signifying your ticket to the messianic banquet in heaven, and it's going to have your name on that ticket, and no one knows except you, Just so it's kind of signifying your relationship with our Lord. And so Jesus is saying, I am more life-giving than that stuff you used to do. Or that you're being tempted to go back into. Okay, so as we read this, what I want you to take away from this is Christ's call to conquer, to run the whole race, to finish the whole course. And just as a human, as I interact with this church of Pergamum, I have so much empathy for them as they're caught up in all this outside pressure. I mean, don't you? Like, it sounds like they live in Satan's basement. Like, don't you have empathy for them? Like, don't you have, like, a measure of, like, man, it must be really hard to live where Satan dwells. But here's the point that I'm trying to make. No amount of pressure from the outside 
makes cancer on the inside desirable. No amount of pressure from the outside makes compromising with lies on the inside a good idea. When I was doing my first triathlon, uh, I had to learn how to swim competitively as an adult because um, I had always learned, known how to doggy paddle. You know, my parents got me enough swim lessons when I was a kid to doggy paddle, but to race was something different. I knew I would drown if I tried to doggy paddle for a race that length. So I uh, got individual lessons with a buddy of mine. We split the cost, and we, we did it. In the, everything we did, we did in the pool. And I thought I was pretty hot stuff because I got way faster than I was when I started. <laughs> Which was still not very fast, but I didn't know that. <laughs> so the race is about to start, so I work my way to the front of the race because, boy, I'm going to go fast. And, you know, we're standing in about this much water. And, uh, you know, the, the gun goes off, and I run, and I dive into the water. And I don't know if you've ever seen the start of a triathlon, but, man, it's like you're being surrounded by sharks. There's, like, people swimming on top of you, swimming, people swimming beside you. And if you're slow, there's people swimming over you. And I was slow, and so there was people swimming over me and on top of me and beside me, and I couldn't breathe. And finally, I came up. It seemed like forever. You know, I came up for air, and I was like, ah, 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 ah. and I looked back, and I had gone about 10 feet. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, i got to catch up. You know, so I put my head down, and I swim, and I'm working on my breathing. Okay, focus on your breathing. It's so scary, though, because you look down, and Instead of it being really lit with a clear black line to follow, it's just nothing but black down there. And so you're just swimming, and I'm focusing on my breathing, and I, eventually I hear, hey, hey, hey. And I thought, oh, somebody must be off course. You know what I'm swimming? <laughs> Finally, like, the, the haze get closer, and I look up, and I am so far off course. Listen, no matter how urgent it is, it's never life-giving to go off course. It's never a good idea. No matter, like in life, I'm talking about life now, not, not triathlons. In life, no matter how urgent it is, it's never a good idea to take your eye off the finish and just put your head down and go off course. It's just not worth it. I was in the island uh, a couple years ago now and Michael Van Valkenburg was teaching and he used this illustration and I called him yesterday and asked him if I could use it. And so he says, think of, think of your life uh, like a like ice cream, you know, like your favorite kind of ice cream. What's your favorite kind of ice cream? Can you think of like what your favorite kind of ice cream is? Like anybody willing to take a big risk and tell us? I heard moose tracks. What'd you say? Butter pecan, moose tracks, cold. Yeah, I mean anything, right? Mint chocolate chip, you know, like uh, a favorite ice cream. If you like toppings on it, favorite toppings. And, you know, let's say somebody just gives you this really nice bowl of ice cream, your favorite kind of ice cream. It's really hot out, really hot, and you're really thirsty, and this is a good way to, like, hydrate. And so 
I'm going to eat this ice cream. They're like, wait, wait, just a second, just a second. There's just a little bit of poop in here. It's, it's less than half a teaspoon, though, so don't worry about it. No, not very much. Just, just you know, half a teaspoon, a little less. You going to eat it? I mean, it's not very much. I mean, it's, it's not much at all. It's just a little bit. See, I'm not talking about ice cream right now. I'm talking about life. Just a little bit of false teaching is too much. Just a little bit of poison is too much. So Jesus is telling them to conquer. And, and when, I, when I read this, initially, my initial gut reaction is, Jesus, they live in Satan's basement. Give them a break. And Jesus is saying, false teaching will not help them. There is nothing good and desirable about false teaching in the long run. There is nothing helpful about lies. It is always poison. Every lie is poison. Some lies, man, they look so good, we can't even see anything wrong with them. But they are always poison. Every time. So conquer. Conquer by rejecting lies. Conquer by rejecting lies. See, how this, how this happens, I think, in your life and my life, when it comes to everyday life, is we, we have a long, hard day at work, and we think, because I had a long, hard day at work, think external pressure, now it's okay, like I deserve to binge eat. Right? Because I had this long, stressful thing, I deserve to get drunk. Because I had this long, hard day at school, now I deserve to just look at trash for an hour on my phone. That is not life-giving. It is still poison. Just because you go through something really hard and have a lot of pressure on the outside, it does not make the poison okay or desirable. Sometimes we say, I think, you know, because I've had such a long, hard day with my kids, it's okay for me, it's fine for me to yell at my spouse. Or because I've had such a hard time with my spouse, it's okay for me to be short with my kids. Or kids might say, well, because I've had such a hard time with my friends, I can yell at my parents or not talk to my parents or whatever kids do to parents. Pressure on the outside does not make poison on the inside okay. Like, it's just, it's still not a good idea. It's still not life-giving. How this might look like at church is, is at church we might say, look, the culture is changing so fast. What we might as well do is lower, lower the bar for moral standards. We might as well because, after all, culture is just, who can keep up? We might say the way people think is changing so fast. I mean, we might as well dumb down our theology, you know, like just expect less. You might say people are just so uncommitted now. We might as well just lower our expectations. 
I might as well. But pressure from the outside does not make poison on the inside desirable. It just never does. So we said conquer by rejecting lies for the truth. Okay, so for the truth. You're going to believe, remember that truth is life-giving. That Jesus is more life-giving than the poison. That Jesus is more life-giving than the binge-eating, or the drinking, or the trash on your phone, or treating your kids, or your spouse, or your parents in a way that is deplorable. Like, that stuff is not life-giving. The lie in the moment is that this is life-giving. You know, that goes back, all the way back to the garden, where the snake, Satan, tells the woman, and then the woman tells the man, like, this is life-giving. How can you be happy without this? This forbidden fruit. Forbidden fruit always looks life-giving, but it is always a really bad idea, and you've never worked so hard or been so stressed out that you deserve it. Because it is death. You know, going back to the race analogy, going back to the race analogy, uh, it's kind of like false teachers are like people pretending to be course officials pointing you in the wrong direction. And so you, you come around the turn and you see this false race official pointing downhill. Then you see the true race official pointing uphill. Well, is it easier to run uphill or is it easier to run downhill? Well, in the moment, it's easier to run downhill. But if downhill is the wrong direction, in the long run, it's easier to run uphill. Okay? So false teachers, they're always going to point us downhill and say, look, lowering the bar, lowering the expectations, dumbing down the theology, making these changes. It's always going to look better in the short run Doing the right thing, running up the hill, is always going to look harder in the short run. But which one is better in the long run? Which one is more life-giving and faster in the long run? Doing what is right. So this is why Jesus calls them to do what is right, even when they're under tremendous pressure. And this, is, this might meet you like you might be in tremendous pressure right now. From work, from school, from family. You might be under tremendous pressure right now. And you might be telling yourself, like, I deserve this sin because of the stuff I'm going through. And this church could say, we deserve to just turn our heads and not notice this false teaching because of the way we're suffering. No amount of suffering for any reason, makes the poison of false teaching or the poison of lies desirable or good for us. Please be aware of when you're justifying stuff because of what you've gone through.
So, turning to the truth is life-giving. Turn to the truth because it's life-giving. Reject the lies because they're not. Second, this is something, turning to the truth is something we will have to be vigilant about until we die. Like, I, I don't think you're going to go through a stage in life where you don't have to guard against lying, when you don't have to guard against getting off track. I think you're going to have to be vigilant throughout your whole life. Sometimes maybe you think when you're in your 20s, well, when I'm in my 30s, then it will be easier. Well, some things are easier and some things are harder. When you're in your 40s, maybe you think, well, you know, when I just get to my 50s, then it will be easier. Well, some things are easier and some things are harder. I, I just have a feeling it's going to be like that our whole life. That there are ways to go off track and ways to get it wrong our whole life. Hold the line. So I have the two trees up there. The one tree represents the tree of life that we were barred from in the Garden of Eden. The other tree represents the tree of life that we'll get to eat from in Revelation 22, which, whose leaves are for the healings of the nation. And in between those trees, we are going to have to be vigilant. So you just have to know, your whole life, you're going to have to be vigilant. So, conquer. We run the whole race by turning away from lies and towards the truth. And third, we do this together. We do this together. I just want you to see the whole church is told to repent. The whole church. This is because if this is because we're in the body of Christ together. So if one part of the body, if one of us drinks the poison of falsehood, we're all going to get sick. If one of us goes astray after some lie, well, we are going to be the ones to go on the rescue part, rescue search. If one of us develops the cancer of false teaching, then we're all going to walk with a limp. So we are together in this, whether we like it or not. And so the whole church is told to repent. So this means we really have to care about each other. Because we're in Christ together. So, we conquer by turning away from lies and towards the truth together. So would you do that this week? Would you think about how you're conquering? Would you notice which lies you're justifying because you're saying, well, I'm under so much pressure from the outside, it must be okay for me to whatever, whatever you might fill in the blank with that. And instead, you're going to say, it is more life-giving to follow Jesus, and so I'll follow Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for conquering sin and death and blazing a trail for us that we can follow you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to just see the emptiness of the lies that we're believing and help us see the wrongness of the compromises and, and help us see where they end and help us believe your truth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.